Hello, everybody, and, and welcome to the History of Actor Training in the British Drama School. Uh, apologies, I've been a little bit absent for a while. I'm hoping in the next few weeks, maybe next couple of months, to, to produce a weekly podcast, maybe a few more, and sort of pick up the pace again. I hope you'll forgive me for being um, a little bit busy and um, sometimes a little bit troubled. So it's been, it's been tricky to produce these, but I, I'm, I'm on holiday now, so hopefully I'll be able to, to get cracking. This week I wanted to read uh, an article called Stanislavski and Shakespeare by Michel Saint-Denis. This is an article that appeared in the Tulane uh, Drama Review. Uh, my reasons for reading it, I want to do a couple of episodes on Stanislavski and I'm building to something which I'm really excited about, which will be an article about, uh, a podcast, about Doreen Cannon and her work at the Drama Centre with three very um, influential Teachers of acting, uh, I won't say who they are yet, but anyway, hopefully a, a, a sort of a major episode where we really, really, really think about and, and dig into Doreen Cannon's influence. Doreen Cannon's position is, is, is hugely important in the history of acting training, in British actor training, because it was Doreen Cannon who, who brought the work of Stanislavski via um, her teacher Uta Hagen and other influences to the Drama Centre in the 1960s and subsequently to RADA in the 1980s. And if you were looking to, to sort of map a really strong but simple uh, account of how uh, uh, Stanislavski's influence arrived in the British Drama School, an influence which came fairly late, I suppose you would say it goes something like this in the period uh, before the Second World War, Three emigre teachers of acting and directors, Theodore Komizajewski, Michael Chekhov and Michel Saint-Denis, all came and worked in Britain. Komizajewski was very much a part of a Russian tradition, although, curiously, in some ways, his ideas were antipathetic. Is that a word? I think it's a word, isn't it? Uh, in opposition to Stanislavski's, and he wrote books early on, or a book early on, in which he criticised Stanislavski. I've never read this book, by the way, but as I understand it. But on the other hand, um, um, his sister was the first Nina um, in, in the production, the famous production of The Seagull that, that sort of started the Moscow Arts Theatre. Um, and uh, although I think perhaps he disagreed with Stanislavski in detail, and of course Stanislavski's ideas evolved and changed throughout the, the, the time he was alive, um, I, I think that he sort of agreed in essence. So something of a Russian approach, maybe what we might call experiencing an inside out approach of of acting was certainly a part of Komizajewski's practice, as far as I can tell. Michael Chekhov similarly was deeply, more deeply connected, directly connected to Stanislavski. And the Michel Saint-Denis one is curious because in some ways there's a sort of a a paradox there, which is that when I read about Michel Saint-Denis schools and the work of the company de Cannes, it doesn't feel like it's in a very strong relationship with the kind of work that I associate with Stanislavski. That, that, that in itself is sort of uh, up for grabs, I'm sure. I'm sure we have a sort of slightly, I have a slightly simplistic understanding of that. Nonetheless, the the idea that Michel Saint-Denis was introducing Stanislavski into the British um, 
drama school and then therefore into the the wider profession seems a little bit strange and when you when you sort of dig into that a bit you find out that although Sondini admired certain things about Stanislavski um uh, his way of working his way of teaching I, I think was was not very closely aligned with with the Russians methods but but that's all very complicated and um and it can be I think uh, nicely uh, looked at via this article that I'm going to read for you. So the article uh, is called Stanislavski and Shakespeare by Michel Saint-Denis. Uh, you recall in an earlier podcast about uh, the Chinese theatre maker, uh, Huang Zolin and his wife Jean, we we heard some of what you're about to hear from, from Michel Saint-Denis himself. So we heard that Saint-Denis admired Stanislavski. We heard that they were excited when an actor prepares, um, was published in England. So let's let's sort of let's hear this story now um, directly from Sondini. So Sondini writes, "I first saw Stanislavski's work in 1922 when the Moscow Art Theatre presented in Paris the Lower Depths, the Brothers Karamazov, and the Cherry Orchard. I was carried away with admiration for the Cherry Orchard. The play is written." in an impressionistic style that leaves room for silence and long pauses. Although it was bathed in a profusion of naturalistic detail, the production grew into a brilliant, comic and moving spectacle. I felt that this was poetry, poetry without rhetoric, theatricality or lyricism. Solely through the skill of the actors, everything became as true as life. Well, that's so. This is me again. Yes, just just read. It's always good to read things out loud, isn't it? I suppose this thing of solely through the skill of the actors, everything became as true as life. That does feel like it very much connects to the work of of Coppo and Sondini. It's actor centric. He goes on to say, generally, Russian actors have powerful physiques, strong featured faces, and resounding voices. Yes, they still do. Uh, anyone who's seen uh, the Mali, for instance, can can testify to that. Uh, he, he goes on. Stanislavski himself was something of a giant. That evening, he played Gaev, and it was an amazing experience to watch him use his size to breathe life into this selfish, incompetent puppet who has nothing left but the charm of his feelings and the prestige of his grand manner. Stanislavski played him as stiffly as an old-fashioned dummy. But when he would furtively mimic a gesture used in playing billiards, Gaev's innocent fad, what lightness! It was the lightness of the acting that made the production enchanting. The fluidity of the inner impulse and the swiftness of the reflexes kept the actors in mid-air. At the tensest moments and in the most difficult movements, their concentration was undetectable. They found truth without contortion. Nothing was underscored, although the naturalistic accuracy of the slightest reaction was rendered exactly. The proscenium, the footlights, some faded foliage, the props, these were all there, but not a single cliché among the characters, not a single attitude, gesture or sound that might create the impression of the already seen or the already heard. The actors seemed to improvise their gestures and text, 
and each second was a miracle of creative invention, originality and spontaneity. It's a wonderful review, isn't it? It's a wonderful review. The th- I'm not sure whether he says here. I've read elsewhere that Copeau and Saint-Denis went along with at least scepticism. Um, as I understand it, the, the, the ideas of, of Copeau, Michel Saint-Denis's uncle, were very much opposed to the ideas of Antoine, who, along with Emile Zola, had sort of developed a, an ultra-naturalistic theatre in Paris. I have got somewhere a paper on something like the aesthetic uh, influences of the Teatro de Vieux Colombier, both things that, that um, Coppo was interested in and things he was opposed to. So, so yes, so I think when we're reading this enthusiasm, it's just sort of fun to realise that perhaps Coppo and, and Saint-Denis had gone along uh, expecting to be irritated, that feeling that I think we all know when we go and see theatre that we, we sort of expect to disagree with. So it was a reversal of how he expected to feel. The Théâtre des Champs-Élysées seats 2,500, yet the slightest word could be heard in the very last row. The actor's skill was like inspiration. What a company and what a director. Therefore, I understand why the American theatre should have adopted, at about the same time as I saw the cherry orchard, such a master and followed the teachings of his disciples. This decision seems even more justified in the light of the similarities between the American and Russian theatres. In the 1820s, Gogol took his subjects from the psychology of the individual social problems and the human adventure of a virgin land. A century later, O'Neill emerged as Gogol's American counterpart. Seniority gave the Russians authority, while not cutting them off from the American temper. Except for Pushkin, their playwrights had for years used the realistic style from which Stanislavski tried to strip its romantic and bourgeois tendencies. Stanislavski's system became the logical tool of American naturalism, and in Western Europe he wielded the same kind of influence. Because of him, the actor and director became concerned with deep motivations and suppressed artificiality and rhetoric. He injected fresh blood into the veins of sclerotic traditions. But in Europe, these traditions were there. The Comédie Française, Molière, Goldoni, Schiller, and above all, Shakespeare. Men like Appiah, Barker, Coppeau, Craig and Reinhardt had already tried to renovate these traditions. With Antoine, we Europeans had already gone through our naturalistic period and we were in full reaction against it. Oh, there we go. Though we gave Stanislavski our full support, we admired the man, his achievements, and later, his system. One question was inevitable. Could we use Stanislavski's grammar to produce Shakespeare, who was the symbol? Is that symbol? So I've got a note here. I'm just going to make sure I remove it. Yes. Who was the symbol of all those styles, old and new, opposed to naturalism? Could we use Stanislavski's grammar to produce Shakespeare? So Shakespeare to, to Saint-Denis is a symbol of all those styles. Style, of course, being Saint-Denis' uh, endless concern. I must insist on the point that we have been converted. 
In fact, the example of the MAT, the Moscow Arts Theatre, had gotten under our skin. But until 1937, we did not know the system. As soon as an actor prepares and building a character were published, we pounced on them, regretting that the second book should have been published so long after the first. It was only then that our doubts were confirmed. We were right to adopt the basic principles of Stanislavski, but in facing Shakespeare, we were forced to make a rigorous choice among the training methods Stanislavski suggested. We had at this time no precise information about the fate of Stanislavski's Shakespearean productions, although later the publication of his Othello book threw light on the matter. So, yes, so... So what's he saying? He's saying they admired Stanislavski, and that admiration was enormous, but that when Sondheim was, for instance, setting up the London Theatre Studio, he had no knowledge of how Stanislavski worked... Now, of course, the actual history of, of Stanislavski in translation is a really complicated one. And, and soon I'm going to read, maybe even next week, because it's really interesting, I might read uh, Jean Benedetti's account of Stanislavski in translation, which is, is an important um, thing to understand when you're talking about or reading about or thinking about Stanislavski, because how we understand him is so bound up with the translation of the books and the history of the writing of the books themselves. There are several great papers and books written about that. The most comprehensive one is Sharon Karnicki, I think that's how you pronounce her name's book, which is really comprehensive. But John Benedetti wrote a, a, a substantial but not, um, not vast account, which I'm going to read for you. Anyway, so yes, so an, an admiration but no real knowledge until the books were published. And then when the books are published, uh, there's an interrogation going on. Saint-Denis goes on to say, in 1958, I was invited to come to America as an advisor for the creation of a drama school at Lincoln Centre under the auspices of the Juilliard School. This, so I suppose we're now entering into the history of the, of the American drama school too. This drama school would train actors and technicians in all fields of theatre, covering all the styles of the universal theatre. I had to examine this vast teaching proposal in terms of the American theatre, both in and out of New York. I took two tours of America, attending shows, rehearsals and classes, talking to professors, directors, producers, actors and designers. I wonder if it's on this tour that he bumps into Stephen Macht. Uh, for anybody who enjoys a good podcast, if you haven't heard it, one of one of my favourites, probably shouldn't have favourites, but I do. Anyway, one of my favourites is a podcast I made with... Um, with Stephen Mack, who's a, an American actor, uh, raconteur and academics. Stephen wrote a, a fine PhD about the history of teaching at Lambda in the very early 1970s. I think I think his PhD was sort of completed. The dissertation was completed in, in 1971. But he talks about meeting Sondheim. Maybe it was a little bit later. Anyway. I knew beforehand about the group theatre and the influence it had on production and acting. In London, I had seen the group's Golden Boy, and had been struck by the introspective nature of the acting. It seemed that the actors were not trying to live their parts freely and easily. They were going so deep into themselves that they succeeded in revealing the insides of their characters. They refused to limit themselves to acting the outer part of the characters. They showed the essence. They were not so much concerned with the cloth as with the lining, 
The face, the gestures and the words were less important than the nervous system, the secret stirrings, the meaning hidden behind the words. The results were incredible. Instead of watching men of flesh and bone, I was looking at skinless creatures moving about and stammering. If a photograph of life was intended, the negative was shown, not the finished print. I knew, too, that the group had been followed by an American version of the system called The Method, which was practised at the Actors' Studio in New York. Again, brilliant piece of writing. And slightly, I'm slightly unsure what he thinks, as in whether he approves or not. Anyway, the studio is not a school, but a place where professional actors of all ages, anxious to return to the sources of their sincerity and to get rid of professional weaknesses, work under the guidance of seasoned directors, most of whom came from the group. The studio has had a great influence on a whole generation of actors working within the contemporary American repertory. Ing. Miller Williams. It has influenced the most recent generation of American writers, Gelber, Albie, and others. I don't know Gelber. It is then a very... So the actor studio is then a very important place, one which has contributed mightily to the orientation of the American theatre. Indeed, it is so important that its success has enabled it to overflow beyond New York into the majority of university campuses. Training there rightly attempts to free itself from a narrow academic approach by encouraging the student to make use of all the techniques of the stage. But in a university, it is most important to expose the students to the classics, particularly Shakespeare. And here again we face, with more serious implications than in Europe, the question of what beneficial relationship may exist between the system as modified by the method and the interpretation of Shakespeare. So there we go, here's a question. What beneficial relationship may exist between the system as modified, so Stanislavski's system as modified by the American method and the interpretation of Shakespeare? Okay, this is a good question. Considered in terms of training the young actor, and not in terms of the work of an already seasoned actor, the method is characterised, in my opinion, by its emphasis on subjective concentration. Both in his improvisations and his approach to the role, the actor looks first into himself to find there the truth and originality of his invention. Of course, this is unavoidably common to all actors. So common, in fact, that one must do everything possible to turn them away from it, to free them from this absolute subjectivity. We must not encourage actors to dally with it and cultivate it. The, the, sorry, I'm getting carried away. Hmm. The means offered by the method to deepen the student's concentration and make it more personal are quite normal if used with moderation. They are those that Stanislavski drew from his own experience and they are orientated towards emotional and sensory memory. It is here that we enter dangerous grounds. So feels to me like when Michel Sondini is talking about the method, and of course this is understandable, especially at this point, he's sort of talking about Lee Strasbourg rather than perhaps Meisner or Stella Adler or, the, or other people too. Um, anyway... 
Okay. It is here we enter dangerous ground. The young actor is directed to search his emotional past in order to find the material with which he will build a character who is still extraneous to his work. In these circumstances, the young actor runs two risks. 1. His search may become too interior. 2. He may push it into zones where his own unconscious comes into play. And then can he get out of the tunnel? Will he find there a wealth of materials useful for his composition? I have seen this introspection pushed to the point of psychoanalysis to what is called the moment of truth when total sincerity is demanded of the young actor who, ignoring shame and self-consciousness, must bring back from the inner depths of his psyche the most secret revelations. I felt then that we had left the theatre to enter therapy. This is a brilliant article because these kinds of questions, I think, are still alive. I think they're still unresolved. Um, I'm absorbed with this article. Uh, hmm. Maybe it's just I haven't done one of these for a while. Forgotten how much I like it. Otherwise, see, I'd read this paper. I mean, I have read this paper, but I haven't really read this paper. Something about reading out loud. Such extremes are no doubt exceptional, and I have heard them condemned by the heads of theatre departments where, incidentally, instructors too often disagree with each other, some holding forth for the method, others supporting an outdated traditional system. Plus change. I have often regretted that the techniques which liberate the actor are not practised more regularly. I mean those techniques which concern the body, physical expression, mime and dance in all its forms, the techniques of physical acting, including those physical actions emphasised by Stanislavski, as well as voice and singing. While in America, I heard the theatre defined too often as the emotional translation of life, as if the intellect played no part in it. I noticed that texts were studied from historical, social and psychological points of view rather than for their technical structure as a vehicle for acting or as artworks with poetic value. There's a lot there. there. In the universities, I saw several productions of realistic plays and even one excellent production of Shaw. I saw a dazzling musical comedy with boys doing an amazing job in female roles. But I did not see, not even at Yale, a production of Shakespeare which was as fresh, new and inspired as one might expect from university students. Many good actors extolled the advantages of the method in helping them overcome obstacles, but they admitted that the classics remained inaccessible. They still had that last door to open, and where would they find the key? The greatest American directors were indifferent to Shakespeare, and this shocked me. It's serious. If they have never met his challenge, how can they know what kind of training actors need to play him? They talk about him, but they don't have the knowledge which can be acquired only through practice. They allow the method, and I've said enough about it here for now, to run its course in order to emphasise the distance which separates it from Shakespearean production. In fact, the method has encouraged the contemporary fragmentation which is a negation of the traditional arts. It has not attempted to rise to the level of the free and ordered Shakespearean world. Was Stanislavski's system closer to that world? So he sort of got, a, I feel like 
Misha something's got a little bit lost, or maybe I have in reading it. But we've sort of entered into a critique of the of the method and and perhaps meaning at this point, Lee Strasberg more or less. And Stanislavski seems to um sorry, Misha Sandini seems to um to think there's a, a, a considerable failure there. So now he's going to go back and, and wonder about Stanislavski. Was Stanislavski's system closer to that world? In 1911, while Craig, that's Gordon Craig, was rehearsing Hamlet at the Moscow Arts Theatre, he said to Stanislavski, I do not want any of this to be in the least naturalistic. I think that it is possible for the actors to express thoughts and feelings quietly, without striking stiff and artificial poses, without rhetorical declamation, and without unnatural pauses. And Stanislavski said at the same time, There was that which we feared most of all. Uh, either the usual theatrical pathos or the other pole, a very tiresome, heavy and prosaic living over of the parts. Why couldn't we find the golden mean? And further on concluding, the actors of the art theatre who had learned to a certain extent the methods of the new inner technique used them with some degree of success in the plays of our modern repertory which were near to their own lives. Apparently, it still lay before us to go through the same work and to find analogical methods and means for play in the heroic and grand style. When Hamlet was first produced by us, our theatre had not yet begun its quest in that direction. I guess Craig must have been partly influenced by William Powell as well and Granville Barker, and, and who he knew. He was certainly at, I think, the Theatre Royal Margate with Granville Barker. I think we discovered that in the episode about um, Sarah Thorne. Sounds quite William Poley to me, what, what Craig is saying. Which is a curious thought, actually, because that means that to some degree the ideas of William Pohl may have had some influence on, on Stanislavski. Never had that thought before. Stanislavski was concerned with this artistic problem during his whole life, and apparently he never solved it. He said in My Life in Art, Chekhov gave that inner truth to the art of the stage, which served as the foundation for what was later called the Stanislavski system, which must be approached through Chekhov. Well, that's a fun quote, isn't it? The Stanislavski system must be approached through Chekhov. I mean, that's certainly been uh, uh, quite a common way it's been done in, in British training schools for some time, maybe not now. And somewhat further on, why can I express my perceptions of Chekhov, but not of Shakespeare? Apparently, it is not the inner feeling itself, but the technique of its expression that prevents me from doing in the plays of Shakespeare what we're able to do in Chekhov. Thus, Stanislavski, always truthful, brings us his admission of defeat. He candidly gives us the reasons for it in building a character. He devotes four excellent chapters of this book to text work, and most of his examples are taken from Shakespeare but he advises the actor to introduce psychological pauses in reading the lines, although they might change the rhythm intended by the author and alter the meaning. Moreover, the mise-en-scene for Othello shows Stanislavski struggling with all sorts of naturalistic motivations. He feels it necessary to show Venice's gondolas and canals. He tries to imagine and write out the life of each of the important characters so that the actors can concentrate on the psychological, social and historical material through which they will live their parts. Naturalistic sets. Psychological preoccupation in the acting. 
I don't claim that there's nothing right in this approach. I merely question its ability to bring us closer to Shakespeare's essence. Stanislavski is a great reformer and a genuine naturalist. How he insists, how he repeats that our art is founded on the organic basis of the laws of nature. But this is not the starting point for a true artist who wants to create worlds which have a life of their own no longer ruled by the laws of nature. The power of the artist is to create characters, places, languages and styles which are outside nature. A Japanese no does not remain within the limits of nature, neither do the metaphysical creations of Artaud nor the delirious inventions of Jeanne. Shakespeare oscillates among the most popular naturalism, the most subjective poetry and blinding explosions. He incessantly jumps from one invention to another, from the song of the fool to the pantomime of the actors in Hamlet or the scene of the blind Gloucester, who believes he's jumping into the sea from the top of the Dover Cliffs. One of my favourites, almost Beckettian, that one, isn't it? Shakespeare cannot be reduced to a single style. It's really good, this stuff. It's really useful. His world is both within nature and outside it. His world and his style build their unity from a diversity that one must understand and merge with, and nothing is more difficult if one tries to find the stage reality of such a oh, and nothing is more difficult if one tries to find the stage reality of such a world the actors who play lear and his fool viola or feste othello or iago cannot possibly live their parts hmm okay not sure i agree but anyway to play parts as difficult as these Actors need long practice with the Shakespearean text, which is not natural. They must learn to base their roles on the text, its structure and images, so that they're literally carried by it, led by it to an imaginative existence which is not real life. It's probably this imaginative existence that Stanislavski called heroic. It's a poor word choice, for heroic implies posing and falseness. Rejecting declamation, we try to find that which is natural in human, which means, in the Shakespearean world, that which is ambiguous, ironic, fierce and contradictory. Hurrah, that's brilliant. Completely true, by the way. In this respect, I do not believe that actors will find more than an elementary grammar in methods or systems. One must start from this precious foundation, this grammar, and then cultivate the poetic understanding of the texts, the study of the texts, the imagination and the techniques, with rigour, discipline and freedom. Or translated by Simone uh, Sanzenbach. So thank you for that translation, Simone Sanzenbach, wherever you are. Yes, um, brilliant. So how does that... So that essay which covered all kinds of things. Um, Stanislavski, uh, the American method, what Sondany thought about it all. Style. I think that essay is really useful, actually, because it probably indicates something um, something quite difficult to get at about the kinds of conversations that Michel Sondany would have been having at the London Theatre Studio and at the Old Vic School and in his other 
European and American schools, conversations which have had would have had a huge effect on the other teachers, I would have thought, and the students. Um, great. Okay, let's leave it there. A, a shortish podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed that. Enjoyed reading that to you again. Um, maybe talk to you in a, in a few days. As always, I, I if you if you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review. I haven't had one for about six months, so it'd be nice to get a, a review. Uh, you can also make a donation via via PayPal if you really wanted to, or drop me a line on Robert Price, eighteen sixty nine at gmail dot com. If you've ever written to me and I haven't replied, I'm so sorry. Um, uh, maybe drop me another line, um, and and yeah, hope to talk to you all soon uh there'll be a few more episodes I'm going to pursue this for a little while there's another essay on stanislavski and shakespeare from the 1960s by charles marowitz i think that's how again how you pronounce his name which i might read which is fascinating great okay well um i went swimming today for the first time in a very long time since march 2020 it was wonderful um and covid cases are falling in britain I think so it's possible uh it's possible that that we continue to move through this crisis um I re- I really hope so I recently finished teaching at E15 on the MA acting course uh rather wonderfully we got to have a week of live shows um mostly without masks masks were warm for, for the singing uh but but not for not for other things. And we managed to do that, which was just brilliant because there's been a lot of COVID around. And I saw, interestingly, towards the end of that, well, during that week, uh, the the other one of the other cohorts or several of the other cohorts were doing their living history project. Living history being something which is connected to the, the, the ideas, really, maybe the spirit of Joan Littlewood uh, as applied into East 15 by Margaret Walker. I think living history comes directly from Margaret Walker. It's a project that's been through some sort of difficult times recently. There's been some, I'm sure, completely legitimate criticism. And so the school has um, processed that. I think some people would say it, it, it took too long to do that. These are not conversations I've been intimately involved in. So I'm just laying down what I think of as the facts. But I, again, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was sort of around the project. I'm pretty sure it was very successful. And perhaps I've been thinking about this a little bit over the past few days, represented some kind of best practice evolution of the drama school. Um, listening to students, being aware of the way that that our, our culture is 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 changing, being more conscious of issues of of equity and social justice and the need to apply those differently through pedagogy. But at the same time, celebrating the traditions and the, um, the 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 ways of doing things that we have. So I hope I'm I'm right in 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 seeing what I saw. What I think I saw was a rather a, a triumphant synthesis of um, of the traditional and the new, as I think should always be the way with traditions. So a positive end to a difficult academic year. Uh, take care. Thanks for listening. Bye.